Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Commons People, the Huffington Post politics podcast with me, Owen Bennett. Today we'll be discussing junior doctors, tridents, the latest rumblings in the Brexit campaign and some people from Google forgetting how much money they actually earn. Joining me this week we have Paul War, Ned Simons and Graham Demonique. The, the gang is back together guys Hooray. after a month or so of us for not being here. Yeah, Happy about that Graham? Very much so. Good. He paused there a bit. He did pause. Right, first of all, this morning Jeremy Hunt imposed a new contract on junior doctors just hours after the second mass walkout by medics. The contract will see junior doctors getting a 13.5% pay rise, but they will no longer get additional money for working Saturdays. He blamed the British Medical Association's refusal to negotiate on the key issue of whether Saturdays should become part of a normal working week as the reason for his move. One junior doctor claimed there would now be a mass exodus of medical talent from England as doctors head to Wales, Scotland or even overseas to ply their trade. Here is Jeremy Hunt making the announcement in the Commons this morning. The new contract will give additional pay to those working Saturday evenings from 5pm, nights from 9pm to 7am and all day on Sunday. Plain time hours will now be extended from 7am to 5pm on Saturdays However, I said the government was willing to be flexible on Saturday premium pay, and we have been. Those working one in four or more Saturdays will receive a pay premium of 30%. Nonetheless, it does represent a reduction compared to current rates necessary to ensure hospitals can afford additional weekend rostering. So because we do not want take-home pay to go down for junior doctors, after updated modelling, I can tell the House these changes will allow an increase in basic salary of not 11%, as previously thought, but 13.5%. Paul, you were in the Commons when this statement was made. Uh, This is quite a drastic measure, isn't it? It's imposing a contract on people. It's pretty pretty drastic. Um, Don't forget, this is shaping up to be quite a a mammoth industrial relations problem for the government. Uh, So much so that uh, one of the NHS England people... Uh, has said that Hunt thinks he's Maggie Thatcher taking on the miners, but the problem is he doesn't have six months' worth of coal. Now, that point means that actually, does he have that, A, does he have the public support for this, uh, taking on the junior doctors, and B, can he cope with any further rolling programme of strikes? It might be very difficult to see whether or not the government thinks that it's going to dig in, so to speak, in a a miners' strike-type situation. And... Then again, there's some people in number 10 think, well, the BMA doesn't want to do the extreme stuff like withdraw its labour from accident emergency. It proved that recently. It pulled that threat. So they think actually the BMA are, are blinking as well. So we'll see. But there was 3,000 operations cancelled on this mass walkout on Wednesday. And, you know, that's, the public are going to start noticing this. Yep. And then it comes down to, I guess, it's not whether he's got the coal stored for six months. Has he got the political capital stored for 
a, a rolling period of strikes. Well, I think that that's the most important thing. Hunt and Cameron are both looking at their legacy through this whole uh, dispute over junior doctors. They both think that, and Hunt significantly in the chamber today said, look, when you look back at this in a few years' time, when we have a full NHS that's seven days a week, you'll all look back and you'll basically think, what was that fuss about? And Cameron is kind of in the same place, which is early in the parliament, use all your political capital, get through a radical reform that you'll be remembered for one day. The problem is there's a massive risk in getting there of really, really undermining Dr. Morale, dislocating any relations you've got with the medical profession and trying to do all the other reforms you want to do. And, uh, and the exodus point is a really important one. You know, if It might not be overnight, but if junior doctors slowly but surely think things are better in Scotland, in Wales, where there's a different health service, or Australia or New Zealand, um, and don't then go on to be consultants and GPs and we're short of GPs, then there could be a long-term effect. Do, do you think the exodus thing might uh, undermine the public support aspect of this? It's a good point. I, I, I tend to think that you know there will be a, a large number of people who think that um, their, t- their hard-earned taxes have paid for doctors to go through a university for seven years, and now they're not quite getting the uh, the, the contract that they want. They're, they're taking their taking their work elsewhere. I mean, that, yeah, that, there that, is a real danger of that, isn't there? I mean, it's it's a bit like when people threaten to leave the country when the Tories get elected, you know, or when Labour gets elected. Andrew Lloyd Webber famously, I'm off. You know, the punters don't particularly like people threatening to go abroad because they don't like things. So, I thought the morale point as well was interesting, where Hunt said he's ordering an urgent investigation into. Doctor's morale. I'm sure. Doctor's I mean, a big investigation with well, it. Just yeah. you, yeah. you, so, Jeremy. I can think of one thing he probably could do. Then maybe that would. Yeah. But is, is this is this politically? Is this not just kind of aping Michael Gove when he was Education Secretary? Which is you get in early, as you said early in the Parliament, you do all the stuff which is going to be difficult, which the people in the industry aren't going to like. Then you move on the person who's done it and you bring in someone else who looks like a smoother figure, in this case, Nicky Morgan. We don't actually change anything. Is this, is this, are, they, are they adapting these tactics again? I think again? that's the problem. The problem is that Hunt, of course, was the guy, the smooth figure brought in to replace Andrew Lansley to calm things down. But as we've talked about before, he is actually quite a radical uh, politician in many ways, Jeremy Hunt. He's not just a you know, Max Headroom face on the telly who can sort of sound normal. Face? Oh, I'm showing my age, Max Headroom. <laughs> this sort of plausible plastic <laughs> figure. Um, I think the real problem here is going to be long term. You know, do doctors think, right, this is, is so disrespectful, it just doesn't get what we want. And the bigger problem is that the seven-day NHS, because a lot of doctors and other health workers think this is a Trojan horse, that junior doctors, a lot of them do work at weekends already. That's their point. It's the consultants and, more importantly, nurses and midwives and all the, all the other health staff who, at the moment, do get antisocial hours payments. And they're all terrified that now Osborne is going to try and go for those as well. And there might well be people who decide they don't want to become a nurse, they don't want to become a midwife if they've got kids and they're being called at all hours God's end for, for, for no extra pay. Sounds like my job. <laughs> well, politically as well, if there's a reshuffle in the offing after the referendum has been reported, then Hunt probably could do this and then get the hell out of Dodge before it gets any worse for him. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. What's the Labour position on this? Then? Are, are Labour supporting the striking junior doctors? Are they supporting what Jeremy Hunt's trying to do but think he's doing it the wrong way? Well, Heidi Alexander today... Shadow Health Secretary, of course. Yeah, she warned that actually there was a real risk with patient safety. I think she was basically saying, look, um, this could be difficult if, if doctors don't sign up to it. However, you're right, there's a political risk for Labour. Heidi has really actually made sure that they don't totally back all the doctors' um, strike action when it comes to things like um, emergency... Um, uh, withdrawal of labour because uh, 
Um, they know that there's a real risk there. If the public mood does turn against doctors, if, if people do start dying, if people do start getting ill because of this industrial action, Labour could feel the backlash of that. So she's actually tried to rein in people like McDonnell and Corbyn, who this week significantly decided not to be on the picket line. Yeah, well, John McDonnell was out on the picket line, wasn't he, last time round? And um, following Prime Minister's questions, um, the issue of whether Labour supported the, the, the strikes came up, came up again. And there was a noticeable kind of response from um, Corbyn's official spokesman saying that, no, he won't be on the picket line and no, uh, John McDonnell won't. Um, they resisted the idea that there's been a change in attitude, but there's definitely been a uh, making sure that everybody's on the same page on this one, should we say. It could be the making of Heidi Alexander, though, if she gets it right, because hot news, an MP, Labour MP, said to me this week when they were discussing future Labour leaders, keep your eye on Heidi Alexander. Do that, but go on. <laughs> keep, your eye on, keep your eye on Heidi Alexander. Tip from the top there, which leads us nicely into this week's quiz. Already? Yeah, I know, we're getting early this week. It always worries me. Uh, This quiz was devised before Jeremy Hunt made the announcement of the pay rise for junior doctors, Okay, and it's about whether these jobs, you earn more as a starting salary in these jobs or as a training doctor, Okay. Okay. And it's called Dr. Doolittle, the quiz. (laughs) And you've got to decide whether it's what's up, doc, as in they earn more than a doctor, or that's all, folks, as in you don't earn very much. What a return. Yeah. What a return. Thailand seems a way Now, I'm not going to tell you how much... The, okay, the trainee doctors currently have a starting salary of 22,636, so I'm told. So I'm going to give you some jobs. You need to tell me whether or not they earn more or less. Okay, okay right. Police constable. That's uh, all, folks. I think that's less. Yeah. That's all, folks. That's all, folks, yeah. Correct. 19,383. Uh... A, a trainee, a graduate trainee manager at Audi. Audi or Audi? Audi, the discount supermarket store. Oh, what's up, Doc? I think that's more than a doctor. No, it can't be. That's all, folks. I, th- I agree with Paul. I think what I think they earn more. Yeah, forty-two thousand pounds. What? Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. I Double. I know. You're in the wrong job. I know. <laughs> you told me that earlier on. Uh, a fully qualified nurse. Do they start more on, than trainee doctors, or do they start less? I think that's less. That would be... Um, I think it's that's all, folks. I think it's What's Up, Doc. I think you're trying to trick us. Yeah, I'm with Ned. It's What's Up, Doc. It is That's All, folks, but only by 1,000. They start on 21,692. Um, okay, uh, let's do this one. Working for Tim Farron <laughs> as his research officer and parliamentary assistant <laughs> in London. Oh, that's going to be what's up, Doc. It's got to be more. The researchers don't get paid very much, though. No, it's um, the, 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 the one that says less. That's <laughs> that's all, that's, I, I think it's more. I think it's more. I think that's what that Farron dollar is going. It is more, but only by about 350 quid. It's 23,000. Well, so all those junior doctors who are filing applications to Tim Farron, it's not worth it. You won't get much more. Uh, and, let, and finally, um, Dudley North... MP Ian Austin, if you were to be his casework and communications assistant in Dudley, yeah, in Dudley, in Dudley, so there's no London waiting no. here. Very good. Would you earn more? What's up, Doc? Or less? That's all, folks. I think more because. What's up, Doc? I'm saying he. I reckon more. Yeah. Well. What's up, Doc? Yeah. Because I think no, more. 16k. Oh, yeah. well, not a lot. Work for Farron then. Exactly. So there, that's the end of this week's quiz. Well done. It was a good one. Is it? Yeah. Wow. yeah. Good. Okay. Um, it was one. 
<laughs> it happened. Let's it move was... on. Let's let's move on. Okay, we're now going to turn back to the Labour Party because, of course, to the casual observer, it may have seemed that something approaching unity had broken out in Labour in the last few weeks. Indeed, those of us who love a good split story are enjoying watching the Tories get themselves all wound up over the EU. But normal service was resumed at this week's Parliamentary Labour Party meeting. A presentation on whether the UK should replace its independent nuclear deterrent quickly opened up old wounds. Shadow Defence Secretary Emily Thornbury was described as waffly, incoherent, cringeworthy by former Defence Minister Kevin Jones. Uh, David Cameron had great fun with her uh, comparing Spitfires to Trident at this week's PMQs. It, it, it takes a quite a talent in a Shadow Defence Secretary to insult, insult Spitfire pilots and our brave submariners all in one go. Another week another completely ludicrous Labour position on defence. I think the last word should go to the Honourable Member for Bridge End, and thank you Twitter for this one, who as she came out of the PLP meeting tweeted this, oh dear, oh dear, oh my god, oh dear, oh dear, need to go to rest in a darkened room. I expect she'll find the rest of her party will be there with her. Mr Paul War had his ear pressed up against the door of the PLP. Is that you don't need to do that because they shout quite loud? Well, it's a very good point because actually Emily Thornberry, when she's under pressure, tends to shout. And so it was brilliant on Monday because uh, the more abuse she got, the louder she got. And of course, the more we heard. And I remember hearing her say very clearly through the door, um, look, look, you've got to look at the evidence. You've got to look at the evidence. And then she all said, there's no point trying to shout me down. And so it was all brilliant. We're all scribbling there. Thinking, oh, fantastic. Thank you very much. You, you know, you're confirming what we think, which is this is a real row going on. Now, the serious point was that there are people, she dismissed them as being five or six sort of ne'er-do-wells in the PLP, but they do represent quite a chunk of Labour MPs who think that, look, this is all a bit of a sideshow. Any review into Labour's defence policy is bound to come to one conclusion, which is actually there's no real alternative to renewing Trident in its current form. And they think the damage that's been done to the party in the meantime, in marginal seats, uh, and, and particularly up north, particularly when you're fighting against UKIP and the Tories, the damage that's been done um, could be pretty severe and could last till the next election. So Labour think, these people think that the party's going to decide to keep Trident anyway? Most of them do, because they think the case is overwhelming. They think that any sensible, if, if she's right, and they are genuinely looking at the evidence, they think the evidence is overwhelming. Now, having said that, um, Thornbury made clear that she talked to a young Turk or a couple of young Turks this week who are experts in drone warfare. Um, and actually, one of those young Turks wrote for us this week um, saying that it's not a done deal. There is some evidence that you can have underwater drones that can, uh, a new version of technology that could disrupt a future sub that delivers Trident. The problem is that the defence experts then come back and say, look, you don't really understand what's going on because we already have lots of anti-submarine uh, devices, um, which are we can't talk about, but they're very, very sophisticated, these devices we've got. We can't tell you what they do, but believe me, they can deter a submarine and they can certainly deter a drone. So th we'll see how the evidence pans out. We heard David Cameron reading out in that clip a tweet from an MP who was expressing her dissatisfaction. I mean, when a, surely, whether or not you disagree with this renewing of Trident or getting rid of Trident, whatever, surely there's a better way to go about this than going on Twitter and coming out of PLP meetings and briefing journalists. And we hope they continue, obviously. But Graham, isn't this actually damage? They're doing as much damage to the party, aren't they, as the policy itself? Is that not right? 
Yeah, but it's a bit it's a bit like in the Wild West now, isn't it? The Labour Party, you know, there's not there's not much there's not much discipline going on. There's not, and it's that's not really kind of coming from the top either. Everyone seems to have free reign to kind of say, say what they want. So somebody tweeting something is 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 I, I don't I don't find it that surprising anymore, which is which is ridiculous given the kind of you know new Labour discipline that the the, the the party instilled and um, everything that put in place to be a, to be a winning party. So that's it's almost, how it, high the bar is now for kind of shock at Labour splits. It's now incredibly high. You know, just any yeah. criticism, it's like, well, that's not really a story now. So it takes something like that tweet, which was actually quite interesting, to actually make a story now. It's such a high bar. To but people actually... like Madeleine Moon. At least she's been consistent in private and in public. Because in the meeting, she really had a go at Jeremy Corbyn, and she did it publicly outside as well and a lot of these guys don't forget it is current Labour policy they're defending that's why they think they've got a license to speak out they're not being ill-disciplined because it's current policy they're defending mm-hmm. and what's happened they say is there's this reviews going on which is just the device to help Corbyn off the back of his leadership election to satisfy his unilateralist wing and they think well actually we do have a right there's nothing wrong with us speaking out it's not a question of discipline this is current policy. I think the best moment of PMQs this week was when David Cameron was, was laying into Emily Thornberry and she just sat on the front bench in a very serious conversation with Lucy Powell, completely Lucy ignoring. Like she was listening we should have got a lip reader. Just to, what was that conversation? Was but then at the end of it, she then got out a pack of chewing gum and started off around to people sitting around next to her. It was, just, it was just really odd. PMQs itself was caught up this week because we had the junior doctor strike going on. We have members of David Cameron's own family coming out and protesting against Tory cuts to councils. Uh, and we didn't get any of this raised at PMQs. I thought that was an interesting... I mean, Jeremy Corbyn went on housing, which is very, very important, but you kind of think you've got to pick your moment. So I think, I think the, people with the, the factor that Cameron's mum, who came out kind of criticising local cut, I think we were all expecting that to come up. It's quite an obvious joke, isn't it? You know, as Corbyn reads out his letter from a constituent, I got a letter from Mrs Cameron. But a point made to me by someone in the Labour Party was he doesn't want to go after you know, a politician's family even if it's such kind of a golden moment, once you start introducing that into the Commons, it opens it up. Yeah, so he's, I think he's, he's worried about A bit nervous about aspect. doing that, but and other backbenchers probably would be as well. He really missed the trick, though, didn't he, when it came to housing. Housing was great, but if only he'd had the right people briefing him about this t- young Tory MP who's forced to live at home mm. with his mum and dad because even on an MP salary of 74 grand, he can't afford a deposit on a flat in London. Now, that would have been dynamite at PMQs. And what's weird is that the Labour Party didn't get their act together. That, that was said last Friday in Granada TV. It was picked up on the Wednesday... There's something gone wrong there, which meant that their PMQ's operation didn't work. We've noticed that a bit, haven't we, I think? Some kind of obvious ways into issues that are quite snappy. Sometimes Corbyn misses them, or his team around them don't insert them into his questions. They're quite Often on serious topics people care about, housing or health, but the kind of snappy way of getting it, like the MP that couldn't afford it, we're always kind of shouting, you could, you could do this, you could do this, and, and he doesn't. So there's something missing in, I think, how they pull the questions together. Before we leave Trident, Graham, stat of the week. <laughs> So I've been away Ned, for... Ned's been doing it the past couple of weeks. How's he been doing? He's been doing all right. He's been doing all right. Okay, yeah, there you go, really, Ned. Really Glowing bad. review. Um, so I've been away for two weeks, but still no jingle, I notice. Budget cuts. Right. <laughs> Austerity. Yeah. Austerity suits too. Okay. Oh, it's on a computer anyway. It's not your kind of illegible handwriting right. then, so that's, that's a step up anyway. Uh, so the stat of the week is, um, if the UK was to get rid of its nuclear weapons, it wouldn't be the first to do so. Ooh. Four countries have previously scrapped the bomb. As Owen's written it here, capped up. Um, South Africa, Belarus, White Russia, of course, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine. So, there you are. It's Graham's stat of the week. It's a good fact of the week, in fact. 
that. Yeah. Oh, four. Four countries would be the stat of the week, yeah, isn't it? That's yeah, that's the stat aspect yeah. of it. <laughs> Are we we're going to quibble over this, are we? No. It's, it's true. And Let's also move on. Stat. Let's move on. Yeah. Let's move on. MPs today gave Google top brass a grilling over its UK tax affairs amid anger the company doesn't pay enough on the £5 billion worth of sales it makes in the UK. Members of the Public Accounts Committee, in effect Parliament's financial watchdog, wanted to know why the settlement of £130 million was so modest. They also quizzed them whether they used tax arrangements such as the double Irish and how much they got paid themselves, something Google's Europe President Matt Britton hesitated to reveal. Could you tell me what you get paid, please, Mr. Uh, I don't have the figure, but I'll happily provide... You don't know office. what you get paid, Mr. Well, um, <laughs> Chair, let me... I mean, perhaps you could give us a ballpark of what you get paid. Forget the share options, then. What's your basic it's, salary? It's, uh, it's a salary... Uh, I, I don't have the figure, but I'll provide the figure privately. If it's relevant to the committee to, to understand my salary... I, well, well, OK. Like well, I'm sorry. OK, you don't know what you get paid. Well, my point is, out there, taxpayers, our constituents, are very angry. They live in a different world, clearly, to the world that you live in. If you can't even tell us what you're actually paid... And I wonder if you've got tin ears that you can't hear... This. You went out there publicly to parade this tax deal. These uh, appearances of these chiefs before these committees, they just, they just show, isn't it? I mean, yeah. You never actually get any light out of any of these things, do you? Yeah, it's, it's, a, bit of, it's a bit of a show trial, isn't it? I mean, um, the, the argument that they had at the very beginning about the guy, how much the Google uh, president is paid. I mean, what... Does it is matter? That, is that particularly relevant to, to how much to how much tax the, the company pays. Um, and he could have just said, it's, it's none of your business, rather than getting to a, a long-winded uh, argument with, with Meg Hiller about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, have, have we learned anything off the back of it? Probably not. I mean, the, the Google's line is that they pay, they abide by the rules, they're tax-efficient, as, as any company would be. Um, so, so, that, so they're doing they're doing nothing wrong. But I suppose that the, the difficulty they have there is that this 130 million quid that they paid, they said they were going to pay back a couple of weeks ago, mm. suggests that they weren't paying enough tax as they should as they should have been. So, it does show that they're, they're maybe they maybe are in the in the wrong. And yeah, have that's been. quite a good point that Caroline Flint made, one of the Labour kind of member of the committee, and kind of she said, "Do you think this current amount you're paying is fair?" And they said it is, and she said, "Well, why weren't you paying it before then?" So I think there's quite a... Yeah, which shows it was a, it was a negotiation yes. rather than a moral sort of duty to do did, it. But we knew that anyway, didn't we? So. Yeah, but the thing is, um, Google is, as we all know, we all use Google, they've got a phenomenal amount of income, they've got phenomenal um, pay rates for all the people at their HQ, and they've got a phenomenal PR outfit normally, and yet their PR is terrible in all this. Um, as Graham says, it did feel a bit like a show trial today, and yet the curious thing is that... Um, um, the new chair of the, of the Public Accounts Committee, Meg Hillier, when she took over from Margaret Hodge, said, I'm not going to do that kind of show trial stuff as much. You know, I mean, Margaret Hodge really went for it. She put these guys on parade. She gave civil servants a real roasting. Um, and, and what's interesting is that Meg Hillier couldn't resist today because I think when you're dealing with something really complex like tax affairs, it's just an easy hit to say, mm. how much do you earn? Oh, you don't know how much you earn. You must be earning shed loads. Great PR in terms of PR for the MPs, terrible PR for Google. Whether it sheds more light than heat, I don't know. Surely it would be better to get HMRC in front of them. Are they going to do that? Well, you know, I think they will. But I, what I find amazing about these executives, really high-paid executives, 
they all have media training for these select committees, you know. No one knows about it, but all the banks, all of them, they're trained up to the eyeballs by these PR outfits. Usually by former journalists, aren't they? Yeah, and, and, and they go through these sort of mock sort of sessions and, and they're taught what to say. And you still don't have an answer today, which is kind no. of odd. No. I thought it was, uh, you mentioned the, the, the double Irish at the, um, at, at the beginning there. It was, it was some of the... Yeah, what some was that about? Yeah, so they and, and this is this is where I think these things kind of come slightly unstuck because you're talking about very fiendishly complicated tax arrangements, such as this thing called the double Irish, which basically means, as far as I can figure out, is that um, Google have a, uh, a headquarters headquarters in in Europe in uh, in, in Ireland in, in Dublin, so that means they pay a lower corporation what corporation tax. tax in Ireland is it three percent? And then yeah, I think so. And then. Well, they're also headquartered in uh, Dublin. They can route some of that through Bermuda as well, which means it's double... <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know. This is, this is my point. This is my point. You're talking about, you're talking about fiendishly difficult, complicated it's, it's, it's tax arrangements. So I'm pretty sure a lot of the MPs on the select committee And it's quite hard to believe quite that, that HQ is another country. I mean, Google's building a massively brand new HQ, just like the road from Hoppost HQ in King's Cross. It's enormous for them to say... Oh, well, that's not really our HQ. It kind of stretches belief a little bit. Another one was called the Dutch Sandwich, and I've, I've no idea what that's. I've been in Amsterdam once. <laughs> yeah. I woke up. Doesn't matter. That's two, two days later. That's why I got that tattoo. Doesn't matter. Um, okay, let's let's move on now. Um, if David Cameron had the guts, he could have wiped out pretty much all of the Eurosceptic movement with one tactical missile strike on Wednesday at a Brexit conference in Westminster. Tory, Labour, UKIP, and DUP MPs rub shoulders as they fantasised about how great Britain would be if they voted leave in the referendum. Whereas most of the speakers focused on a return of democracy and sovereignty in a thriving business environment, UKIP leader Nigel Farage played his greatest hit, immigration. Not everyone in the room welcomed his strong words, with one person pleading with him to discuss the issue in a temperate way. Here's Nigel Farage's reaction to that call. Well, look around this room. There are titled people, wealthy people, quite a few Eaton and Oxbridge, um, mostly living in three million pound houses in West London. Listen, this lot haven't got a clue what it's like out there. And, and you could tell, I mean, the first question, you know, oh, please, I mean, I mean, do we really have to talk? I mean, it's all so awkward and awful and ghastly, and nobody at my dinner parties talks about this sort of I mean, please, do we want to win the referendum or not? We want to win about it. We've got to talk about what is the number one issue in British politics and the impotence of a British government to influence any of this. All the while we stay part of the European Union. And all I'm saying to these people is wake up and smell the coffee. Wow. Who, who was he imitating there? He was, was that Zach Goldsmith? No, was no, that was, Carswell? Who, no, it was, just, who's it was, the someone, it was someone in the crowd who really? asked a question who said, who said, you know, we can talk immigration, can we please use temperate language? And Farage gave that reaction to me afterwards, but it was very similar to the reaction he gave actually in the conference. It was very interesting that you had all the big beasts of the Eurosceptic movement. You really, you know, Liam Fox, David Davis... John Redwood, Steve Baker, all the, all the greats, as I think of them. And uh, they all made these sort of very rational points. And Farage got up there, no, straight from the gut. Immigration's the one thing we're going to do. And I was sitting just behind Douglas Carswell as Farage was giving this speech. And I've never seen a, a grin forced on a man's face so much. Because Douglas Carswell, even though he's a UTIP MP, does not think that talking about immigration is the way to convince the middle third of people in this country, I haven't got their mind made up yet on the EU, to vote to leave. He thinks it's quite a divisive way. The rhetoric can be seen as quite nasty. And he'd much rather talk about business, as would most people there. Farage was amazing when he got up and had that go at everyone's Notting Hill dinner parties. So it was, uh, I mean, there was a question in the last session at the end, and Steve Baker 
of Vote Leave, Nigel Farage, Leave.eu, two rival camps won't merge, won't merge, sitting next to each other. So I got on the microphone and I said, there's a coffee break coming up, why don't you two just go in the corner and sort out your differences? And they weren't having it. Steve Baker said, no, we're not going to merge. And Farage said, well, there's your answer, Owen. So they're all still friends then, are they? Yeah, peace is not, peace is not <laughs> going to break out. So that's, that's the latest from the Brexit campaign. <laughs> so, we're, so we're still uh, probably about six months away from a, from, a, from a referendum. And already there's divides in, in, in wings of the in and out campaign, well, more, so, more so the out campaign. And already we're getting a lot of project, project fear as well. And still the public has, is, hasn't caught the public's imagination yet and already we're seeing these kind of quite these are things that we'll probably see towards the end when things were getting a bit more desperate a close competition so where does it where where does it leave the campaigns going forward it's just going to be a kind of miserable bleak kind of presentation of of what life would be like in or out wouldn't it i thought it's quite interesting today chris grayling's one of the most eurosceptic cabinet ministers who's going to come out for brexit in the Commons today took a bit of a pop at project fear and they kind of they can't wait to get campaigning against the European Union. And I think February twenty second, which Chris Bryant has christened National Grayling Liberation Day, which is when Chris Grayling, um, Ian Duncan Smith, perhaps Priti Patel, John Whittingdale can finally be let off the leash by the Prime Minister and campaign for exit because they're quite frustrated, of course, because the pro campaign is allowed to be made, but they're being restricted by the Prime Minister's rules. But Project Fear it works on both sides, it seems to me. I mean, I think Farage's comments to you just prove that actually. Farage knows fear works. Fear does work. It worked in Scotland. People were little old grannies in east of Scotland were terrified about losing their pension, terrified about losing the pound, the BBC, the royal family, all this stuff. It kind of worked. That was all quite potent in the Scottish referendum. In the European referendum, the in-camp are very, very determined to scare the hell out of people, not just about uh, the economic problems and instability that would launch from this leap in the dark, but also the security fears. Would we lose a European arrest warrant? Would we be able to k- kick out terrorists from our streets if we didn't have a Europe-wide sense of security? As well as Putin, um, you know, on the border. Yeah, um, Hillary Benn only today said that, you know, Putin would be the first person to lick his lips if Britain left the European Union. Yet Farage, as he made clear to you, knows that fear works as well. And if you scare the hell out of people about this mass migration coming on our doorstep and also the cologne attacks. I mean, Farage said also, as you pointed out in a report this week, that, you know, cologne-style sex attacks on women could happen here if, you know, we let all these migrants in. And Cameron, and Cameron was doing something similar with, with, with Cali, wasn't he? And moving, yeah. moving the jungle this side, of, this side of the channel, as you say, that's, that flips it the other side around, what the implications are fear-wise if we, if we vote, to go, to vote to leave. And on that optimistic bombshell, we say uh, goodbye, thank you for listening to Commerce People, and we'll see you next week.